The epistle reading today, which is also our sermon text, is from 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 17 and going to the end of the chapter. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, When you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Oh, that thing works. That's great. Okay. Um, Something weird happened. A few months ago, on the top of the Billboard music charts, which I know you guys pay a lot of attention to, Um, but the kids probably know what I'm talking about, and maybe some parents, and maybe some other people who don't live under a rock. Who do we not talk about? Anybody? Bruno, okay. Kids, Neil beat you to it. Y'all should be ashamed of that. Bruno! It's a catchy song that actually hit the top of the charts, um, and it only recently, uh, like I think in the last couple weeks, went off of it. Um, it was the number one song for so long. Catchy song, We Don't Talk About Bruno, and it came from this movie called Encanto. Encanto. I don't know, maybe I'm saying that weird, but... Um, and I was playing the song at one point uh, when I was, we, we were doing youth group things, I guess, um, and as happens 
more frequently than I'll admit, uh, the kids made fun of me because I had not watched this movie yet. So I ended up watching it, watched it with my kids. Um, you know, beautiful movie. But what really struck me about this movie was that it, it, it was kind of refreshing to me, I guess, in a way, because the antagonist, like the, you know, the bad guy or the bad thing in the, in the movie, was not like some evil genius Right? Uh, the fate of the world wasn't at stake. There were no aliens or monsters or anything like that. The, the negative thing that drives the plot of Encanto is the threat of losing the magic. The threat of losing the Encanto, which means the enchantment. Because if the family lost that, it was about this family, uh, the Madrigal family that lived in the mountains of Colombia, and they all had um, magical gifts. They lived in this magical house, right? Um, Their world was filled with magic, and the threat that drives the movie is they might lose the magic. They might lose it. And the thing with that was, it, it wasn't just that you know they would lose this fun house that they grew up in that was magic, did magic stuff, right? It wasn't just that they would lose these gifts these magical gifts that they had. It was that losing the, enca- the, the encanto, the enchantment, meant that they lost meaning. They lost their place in the world. They lost their family identity. They lost their history. They lost their wonder and their hope. And the philosopher Charles Taylor has actually written that that is the world that we currently live in says that we live in a world of disenchantment. That's the age we're in. We're in the age of disenchantment. It says in past ages, humans lived lives of enchantment, where he's, he's not actually talking about magic, right? He's talking about a life filled with wonder and meaning and mystery. He's talking about where meaning isn't just something that you, you have in your head, like there's no meaning in the world, and you just assign it that, you assign it meaning in your head. It's a world, a world of enchantment is a world where things actually have meaning, right? A sunset is actually beautiful, not just because we think it's beautiful or because we, we, we impose the meaning upon it that it's beautiful, but that there's, there's actually a such thing as beauty and goodness and truth, right? We live in an age of disenchantment now. Whereas before... The self was kind of vulnerable to all of these unseen spiritual realities that we live in, both good and bad. Now we we have selves that are protected. They're shielded from all that. Whereas before, um, gods, at least for Christians, right, gods or, or, you know, Jews or, you know, other monotheistic religions, God was present. He was active. He was alive, Right? What, what, God's, what God wanted to do happened, and, and, and the things that we experienced in life were a part of God's world, but now, you know, like, we can affirm some of those things, right? We can say, you know, this happened, this happened. We can affirm the Nicene Creed, right? But sometimes it's very hard to feel like that's our world, like that, that really exists here. For us, sometimes it's hard to experience reality that's beyond what we can see and we can feel and we can touch. And I think that goes, you know, that looks one way for secular people, right? That just looks like materialism. This is all there is. There's nothing 
going on beyond what you can experience with your five senses and think about with your mind, right? Looks very obvious for them, but I think we also drink from the same well of disenchantment. We also inhabit the same world of disenchantment. Like I said, we can, we can affirm the Nicene Creed. We can, we can say we believe in the resurrection. And yet we can also, at the same time, live as if miracles didn't exist. As if reality is only as deep as what we can see. As if magic and mystery and wonder are things that, you know, we, we have those for our kids, right? We experience mystery and wonder as kids, but then we grow up. We have to outgrow those things. And then we live as pragmatic materialists. And I think that kind of adds to the divide that we can feel sometimes, or at least I feel sometimes, between what, what goes on Monday through Saturday, right? Our, our normal lives, we wake up at you know, whatever time, we eat breakfast, we, we get ready for work, we go to work, or, or we have kids we take care of, and, you know, and then the day ends, we have dinner, um, we talk with, with family, things like that, that are real, that feels real, and then we come in here and we talk about God, we talk about salvation, we talk about the, the things of God, and it just, it feels like, it feels so disconnected from us. I remember uh, being in a a class where we were talking about the theology of the union with Christ, of union with Christ. What does that mean? What is that? Like, what is that, right? And I remember one guy, very distinctly, was really frustrated. And he he just, in in an exasperated way, he just said, it just feels so intangible. Do you get that? Do you feel like that sometimes? It just feels, what we talk about in here, it just feels so intangible. The car ride to work, the baseball game, poopy diapers, Chinese food, that's real life, right? That's what we can experience. But faith and drawing near to God, that's what we're talking about, right? That kind of thing, God's presence with us, what happens in prayer, that stuff We can say it's real, but it's real maybe somewhere else, or it's real in an abstract kind of way. We're disenchanted, and that leads us into a loss of wonder. So we are in this sermon series on drawing near to God, and I can't help but question, when we're breathing this disenchanted air of the world around us, and when the things of God feel so far away from us, when we can yawn at miracles and talk of angels and the gospel... And when our sense of mystery and wonder are dulled, how, how, how are we supposed to... If that's true of us, how do we draw near to God? If all of that feels so, so emptied of, of real wonder and meaning and mystery, how do we draw near to God? We're going to talk today, um, as you've already heard, about the Lord's Supper. And ultimately, I'm going to make an argument to you this morning about how it relates to our disenchantment. Um, just if you want a hint, you can look at the sermon title, and how it draws us near to Christ. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 11 together. If you want to turn there with me, that would be great. Um, 1 Corinthians is a letter from Paul to the church at Corinth, um, and it's really messy. Paul has a relationship with his, these people, but there's a lot of divisions going on in the church. There's a lot of like really crazy sin going on in the church, and Paul is writing this letter to address those things in light of the gospel. So this passage that we have here right now is actually, it's the earliest account we have of Christians 
taking the Lord's Supper. That we, we think this is probably the earliest letter, bleh, letter that Paul wrote. Um, and, and he's giving us a picture of kind of how the Lord's Supper is done badly, right? But in that, we learn a lot about what the practices were and, and what they're supposed to be and what the Lord's Supper means. So read with me, verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better. And that's what worship is supposed to be, right? That's why you came here today. Worship is for the better. It's for the building up of the body of Christ and the unifying of the body of Christ. But for the worse, we're going to see that they're, they're, instead of being built up in worship, they're being torn apart. It's for the worse. Verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So Paul has heard, you know, these kind of second, maybe third, maybe fourth hand rumors about the church. And he's like, you know, some of these are probably exaggerated, but I believe them in part because he knows that not all of them are acting out of the love and the truth of the gospel. And so it's good, he says, that those who are genuine, and and we can take that in the sense of being approved by God in these controversies, those who are genuine may be recognized. They can stick out. Verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? So to do a little background work here, Corinth had some wealthy believers in their church. It was possible that this was like one of the wealthiest churches um, in, in all of uh, these uh, you know, New Testament times where Paul was writing these letters. Because we see in 2 Corinthians how Paul is encouraging the Corinthian church to give out of the abundance of their wealth to other poorer congregations. So they had wealthy people there, um, but like all churches at this time, they also had people in deep poverty. Um, they had working class people there. That was very, you know, they, had, they had all of them there. It was the norm in this period to have um, like kind of social clubs and religious societies, and when you were eating a meal in those religious societies and social clubs, it was, it was kind of the norm that those that had greater wealth or greater status would be given greater quality or quantities of food. And on top of that, these rich members in the church, being a part of those clubs, also were the ones that were probably providing most of the food that the church was eating. This was, they ate a whole, you know, unlike, you know, we, we have uh, this... Lord's Supper, where we have loaves of bread and, and um, you know, cups with the, the wine. But they had a whole meal as a part of this. They would usually, the love feast was, was a meal that the church ate, at least in the early church, and then they broke the bread and, and drank the wine afterward. And so the people that were wealthier in the congregation were probably bringing most of that food, and they were probably hosting the church in, their, in, in a building that they owned, Right? So all of that, could, we could see that leading to the sense that um, these people just expected this is the way the world works. Yeah, we, we, we eat most of the food. We, we eat earlier. We eat when we want. That's the way it works out here. That's the way it works in here. So Paul gives us this picture of a person that 
is coming probably off of work, right? They probably had to work up until time for the church gathering. And they're tired. And they're hungry. And they walk into um, the church gathering wanting food and finding somebody else with a plate, an empty plate with crumbs all over it, wasted. Guy's completely wasted. He says, one goes hungry, one gets drunk. And Paul's condemnation here is that to do this is to actually despise the church of God, and it's actually heinous enough that it negates the sacrament. Because they're not taking the Lord's Supper, they're not taking Jesus' meal, each one eats his own meal. So what's, what does Paul say to that? Instead of just going off on them, look what Paul does. He takes them back to Jesus, which is probably a good thing to do, right? He takes them back to Jesus. He, resets, he wants to reset their practices by, by going back to how the Lord's Supper was instituted. So read with me at verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And you, if you've been here before, you've heard that, right? You've probably heard that every single Sunday that you've been here. But what does that actually mean? What's, that, what, what's going on in the Lord's Supper? There's some very obvious things that Jesus says here, very important things, like remembrance. It's, it's a remembrance and proclamation of the gospel. In doing this, we're remembering and proclaiming the sacrificial death of Jesus on our behalf. And, and, and we're proclaiming that to ourselves and to the world outside of us. Um, and, and that's kind of like an acted, that proclamation is used for, um, that, that, that's the same word used for when um, the, the disciples would proclaim the gospel with their words. But this was a kind of acted sermon, right? It's proclaiming the gospel when we break the bread and pour the wine. But Jesus also says, this is my body. This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. And there's been a lot of arguments, as if you can believe that, in terms of what that means, right? So I can say, we, we can say and acknowledge that these arguments have gotten really heated in church history. Christians have been, you know, they, they've gotten up in each other's faces about this, especially in the Reformation. And can I just point out, if, that, if it wasn't already obvious, how ironic it is that in the meal that Jesus gave to us, in order that we should come together and draw near to the Lord, united, we divide over it, and we fight over it, and we get heated over it. That's very human, isn't it? But I, I just want to say, um, just to make this clear, um, this is not a table for people who agree with each other on everything or at least all of the secondary and tertiary beliefs that we have, right? Um, this is not um, John Calvin's table. It's not the PCA's table. It's not When we do the Lord's Supper, this isn't even Grace and Peace's table. This is Jesus' table where he is the host, and if you come to him in faith, then you are welcome to it. 
But it's good to talk about what we do actually believe Jesus is talking about here and what actually goes on in the Lord's Supper here, right? So, I don't know if I'm allowed to do this, but I'm going to end up messing up something anyway, so might as well just get it out of the way, right? Um, So this bread, um, there are some Christians in church history and and today who um, take this is my body and this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, and they take that to be um, kind of an illustration, or a metaphor. And they say that there is no special presence of Jesus in the Lord's Supper. Um, they would focus on the words, do this in remembrance of me. That's all the Lord's Supper is. It's, it's a remembrance of what Jesus has done for us, right? And, and to those people, I'd say I, I understand that, but I also think that there's more going on in the passage. I think there's more going on with Jesus saying, this is my body and this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. And there's some things that Paul's going to say in a few verses away from what we're talking about that I think also indicate that there's, there's, there's actually something going on with this bread. It's not, it's not just a remembrance, okay? There's also, um, on the other end of the spectrum, there's some people, um, some Christians throughout uh, history and today that would say that this bread actually becomes the very um, body of Jesus, and the wine actually becomes the very blood of Jesus. And they, they, they kind of use, not to get too, you know, um, abstract here, but they, they use some of Aristotle, you know, the old um, Greek philosopher, they use er- some of Aristotle's philosophy to explain that. They say, well, things have substance, what, like what they actually are, and then they have accidents, which is what they look and smell and, and feel and taste like, right? So they say that even though the accidents of this bread are the same, right? It still tastes like, you know, rye, nine grain, whole, whatever. But it's actually Jesus' body. There's other Christians that would say that Jesus is physically present, but we, we don't exactly say that it turns into the body of Jesus. There's those other Christians would say that um, Jesus presents himself to us uh, with the bread. So he's, he's present in, with, and under the bread. Um, and, and to those Christians, I, I would say, um, I really do respect those points of view. Um, but there is something that makes me give a little bit of pause to believing that, and that's the Ascension. So it's Ascension Sunday. Um, I think we messed up and had the wrong scripture for Acts because we read the passage right after the Ascension, right? But um, if you look a few verses before where we read in Acts, there's the Ascension. And in the Ascension, Jesus is... Jesus' body actually goes up to heaven, right? Jesus actually physically ascends to heaven. And, and I think we don't give that the weight that it deserves sometimes. I think we're a little bit, um, if you will, disenchanted to that. Um, because, you know, how, how often do we, do we really get that Jesus has corneas that help him, you know, in, in a physical way? in a physical sense, to see that Jesus actually has an esophagus and taste buds and a digestive system to eat fish. He ate fish after the resurrection. That Jesus actually has flesh. Probably doesn't look like mine, but he has flesh with wounds in them that can be poked by Thomas, right? That Jesus actually has a heart that stopped beating once but will never stop beating again. 
Amen? That he has lungs that stopped pumping oxygen through his blood once, but will never stop doing that again. Jesus, is, he has a physical body. And so I guess my problem with the, the physical presence of the bread and, and Calvin's problem with, like the reformers' problems with this was that Jesus' body is real. He has a real body. It's not just that he's some, you know, metaphysical person somewhere else that can, you know, transport. Jesus is real and he is in heaven. And so if he's real, if he's physically present locally in heaven, can he be, can his body be physically broken every Sunday by the church, all, you know, throughout the world? all time, if Jesus has a body. The reality of Jesus, the truth of his living, breathing, embodiedness should fill us with wonder here. It should should fill us with wonder, but there's a problem, right? And that problem is that we are not physically with him, right? Jesus is in heaven. Again, ascension. He's at the right hand of the Father in heaven, and that's where the Lord's Supper comes in. Some people think that when, when we say, when, when people from the tradition of this church say that we believe that the presence of Jesus in the supper is spiritual, that we mean kind of like how people say, oh, I'll be with you in spirit, you know? Or like uh, in, the Li- in Lion King where, you know, after Mufasa died, he appears in the sky to Simba and is really inspirational, right? Or, or they believe it's, it's just kind of some murky, abstract way that we believe that um, Jesus is present in the supper, but that's not what we believe. Here's what happens, here's what I I think, here's what the tradition of this church um, uh, believes happens in in the Lord's Supper. And again, if you don't, if we differ a little bit, it's okay. It's okay. We're brothers in Christ. We can fellowship. But from everything that I can see in Scripture, what happens in the Lord's Supper is that in taking the bread and wine, we are united by the Holy Spirit. That's what we mean by spiritual. Not some abstract, you know, Mufasa way, but by the Holy Spirit with Jesus, the real Jesus, the physical Jesus, in a real and special way. And in, in doing that, we partake of his body and blood in a way that by faith is actually a means of grace, meaning a way that God gives and communicates his grace and love to us in a way that builds us up in him. It's kind of as if in, in taking the bread and the wine, the Holy Spirit meets us and pulls us and draws us. Sorry, Neil. I did not prepare him for this, by the way, if you couldn't tell. But he draws us before the living, breathing, physical presence of Jesus with the meal set before him. Thank you, Neil. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> But that's what's happening in the Lord's Supper, right? It's not, you know... So when people say literally, you know, people use the word literally to mean figuratively now, right? Like, I, I, I literally can eat a horse. But when, when we take the Lord's Supper, we are literally, as in actually, really meeting with Jesus... He will come down to meet us in person one day, but that's, I don't think that's exactly what's happening in the Lord's Supper. I think in the Lord's Supper, we are brought up to him by the Spirit. 
We are ascended to him in a way. Not in the same way that Jesus was, right? But for one grace-enchanted meal a week, we dine in heaven. We dine with Christ. And that brings us back to the Corinthians. Verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning, and you can read that as sinning against, the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. So having already covered the truth of the Lord's Supper, what, what, is that, what does that sacrament require of us? What does that sacrament require of us? Paul says two things here, and he, he kind of uses them synonymously. I'm, I'm actually, I shouldn't say kind of. I, I think from the text we can see that he does use them synonymously. He's, he says, examine we must examine ourselves, and we must discern the body. So discern here literally means to distinguish one thing from another. So discerning the body means grasping that this meal is, is not like just any other meal. This meal is not just, you know, Thursday dinner, right? This meal is meeting with Jesus. This has to be treated as if you are taking, you know, and I'm not saying that to, do, to, to, to take the Lord's Supper rightly that you have to, you know, believe the same things, that exact same things that I believe about the Lord's Supper, but you have to know that it is the Lord's Supper, that it is Jesus' Supper, right? It is the Supper that Jesus has given for us, um, and this is the sacrament that he has instituted for us. It's Jesus' table. And in a way, the Corinthians' issue was that they disenchanted it. They made it just like any other meal. They, they took all of the meaning out of it. This is just another meal. It's just like what I eat with my social club down the road. Right? The way the world works out there. Why can't I go ahead and eat all I want, drink all I want, whenever I want? Right? And by the way, just as another testament to this being, the Lord's Supper being drawn near to Jesus, there's a punishment here, right? There's some bad stuff that happens when believers are, in a way, keeping other believers from the Lord's Supper by taking their, making, it, making it their own meal, right? What made Jesus mad? Who can, who can shout out some things that, things or people or groups that made Jesus mad in the Gospels? Ada? The what? That's okay. Yeah, the merchants at the temple. Yeah. Any other groups of people that Jesus got mad at a lot? Pharisees. The Pharisees. So the money changers and the Pharisees. And essentially, what was his beef with the money changers and the Pharisees? They were keeping people from God. They were keeping God's children from coming to him. And that's what these people in Corinth were doing. They were keeping God's kids, God's special, particularly here, poorer kids, less powerful kids, from coming to him. And that enrages God. When you try to keep his kids from him. If it's mere bread and wine, they thought, why not just do what we do out there, in here? 
But if this is actually a meal hosted by Jesus, where we are drawn near to and fed by him, we enter into the enchanted reality of the kingdom of God, where there are no more disenchanted divisions between us. But like Galatians 3.28 says, male and female, Jew and Greek, rich and poor, right? We are all one in Christ Jesus. So getting to the nitty-gritty here. For a believer, when should you not come to the table... And when should you come to the table? There are some situations where a believer should not come to the table, right? That's obvious with this, with this passage. I think we can certainly take this to mean that if it's time for the supper and you have realized that you are egregiously mistreating the people of God, the, the children of God, especially those who are poor or, or less powerful than you, then you shouldn't come. That's the situation. And there's also, you know, the situation of of church discipline, where if you're, if you're living as if you are not an unbeliever, or causing divisions, or, or um, unrepentantly sinning, then, you know, the, the session of the church, the, the elders of the church can say, we think either, you know, for, for a time, you should not take the Lord's Supper, you can be suspended from it, or if it gets bad enough, and all of these different processes that we find in, like, Matthew 18 are used, then you could be excommunicated from that. But even... You can be excommunicated from the table. But even in all of those situations, the goal is repentance. The goal is that you come home. The goal is that you find the grace of God in the gospel and you turn around. And then you come back to the table. Even in this passage, you don't find Paul actually saying, don't come to the table. You see Paul saying, stop mistreating the children of God and then come to the table. Rightly. I've heard the sentiment before that if you're struggling with your faith, if you're, if you're struggling with sin and doubt, that you should probably refrain from the Lord's Supper for a time. And I want you to look at me. If you feel tempted not to come to the Lord's table because you are unworthy or because you are disillusioned by your own sin and shame and guilt? If that's, if that's you, if you're dragging your feet about it or thinking of not taking it, can I plead with you, believer? If you, if you have faith, but you're, you, you're, you're struggling with some doubt or you're, you're, you're struggling with sin and you don't want to come to the table because of that, can I plead with you to stop misunderstanding Jesus? To miss the nature of the Lord's Supper in this way is to miss the truth of the gospel. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, period. Taking this meal is not a sign of your perfect obedience. Taking this meal is not a show of how great your sanctification and your growth and holiness is going. Taking this meal is not a gold sticker that Jesus gives to you for not committing the sins that you feel most guilty about that week. This meal is for people who need Jesus. This meal is for people who are, like Chris said, needy. It's for spiritually hungry and thirsty people who need the power that grace gives us that, and that we find in the bread and wine through faith. 
I was, I was talking with Mike a couple years ago about this, and I still remember him saying this. He said that um, he had a, a pastor, an earlier pastor he, ha- he had that um, was, he was talking to about this, told him, if you're struggling, if, you're, if, you're, if you have doubt, if you have sin that you're, you know, just like slammed by, you shouldn't not come to the table. You should come to the table and you should take an extra large piece of bread and an extra big gulp of wine. And that's being a little, you know, tongue-in-cheek, right? Because it's not the amount we take that makes this effective for us. But you get the point, right? If that's you, if I'm describing you this morning, run to the table a little bit faster, right? Run faster, not slower to the table. Because this is Jesus, this is drawing near to Jesus. And this is what gives us the spiritual nourishment that we need to grow in faith and holiness. So examining yourself doesn't mean morbid introspection. I'd argue that the lead up to the Lord's Supper isn't even, I mean, if you do this, that's okay, right? But it's not even the place in the service where you confess. The place where you confess in the service is the confession, right? Self-examination here means examining yourself that you discern the body, that you understand the gospel that drives this meal, the gospel that fuels, in, in a way, this meal. The Lord's Supper is when sinners take their eyes off of themselves and look to Jesus in the gospel. My campus minister had a son who had broken, you know, he gave him a, I don't know, a little tablet to play with, right? Um, And, you know, several months before this incident, he had broken it. He had been careless with it, and he had broken it, and so his dad told him, like, you know, I'm giving this back to you, but you have to take care of it. You can't, you know, leave it on the edge of the table. You've got to take care of this. And um, on the day before a University of Kentucky basketball game, which is, you know, a huge thing in this area, right, Um, the son had broken it again. So the dad had sent him to his room um, to time out. He sent him to time out in his bed. And after a while, you know, my, the, my campus minister, the, the, his dad, was um, watching the basketball game and said, you know, I, I want to I watch this with Abram. I want to watch this with my son. And so he goes into his room to his son who's on the bed in time out, and he says, hey, come on, let's watch the game together. And the son looks up in tears with tears welling, you know, going all down his face, and he says, no, I haven't been punished enough yet. And it was kind of a cute story. The kid was like, I don't know, five years old or something. But that's us sometimes, isn't it? That we decide, oh, no, I haven't, been, I, I, I haven't felt bad enough for this yet, right? But God in Christ paid for your sins on the cross. And if he says to you, come on, daughter, come on, son, come to the table. I want to be with you. Then I plead with you by the living body of Christ to get off your bed and come. I want to talk just for a second about mystery. You'll notice that there's a lot of stuff about the Lord's Supper that I didn't talk about. Um, and, and I think that we, we get a little uncomfortable with that, Right? There's a lot of questions unanswered here. And it's good, I think, to use reason. I think it's good to think about these things. I'm not against that. But we reason best as humans who acknowledge our creatureliness, 
As children of God who know that we're limited creatures made by an infinite creator, we have to grapple with hard questions like this by holding our reasoning in one hand. Yeah, we can reason. We'll think about it. That's good. God, God gives us brains to do that. But we also have to hold another hand and surrender that we're creatures. And only God knows, knows everything that there is to know and we can embrace the mystery. I was reading a book about Charles, Taylor's, Charles Taylor, um, his, his idea of disenchantment, um, and the author argues that one, one way to seek reenchantment is by doing this, embrace the mystery. He wrote, uh, he wrote when I wrote the words embrace the mystery, I kind of cringed because it kind of sounds like something you'd hear in a bad Sarah McLaughlin song or on the back of a beat-up Volvo, right? But it's true. We need to embrace the mystery. We naturally live in an enchanted, wonderful, supernatural, mysterious world, like I said before, when we're young, right? But when we grow older, we learn to be more rational and more confident that what we see is all the reality there is. In Frozen 2, and y'all, I promise that my bank of illustrations goes beyond kids' movies, but that's the world I'm in right now. Um, in that movie, there's a character named Olaf, and he gets lost in an enchanted forest, and he sings this song. Feel free to sing along with me if you want, or I can just look silly. This will all make sense when I am older. Someday I will see that this makes sense. One day when I'm old and wise, I'll think back and realize that these were all completely rational events. And as he's singing this, there's boulders flying over his head. He's floating in the air. Um, there's uh, spirits flying all around him, right? And he falls in this big hole that then we zoom out and realize is a big footprint left by a rock giant. And so it, it's, it's funny because here's this character running through an enchanted world pretending that it's not. He just needs to grow up and understand it. And that's exactly what we do when we lose our wonder at God and the world he's made. Oh, and I forgot to mention that, who's Olaf? Kids? He's a talking snowman, right? So there's this talking snowman wanting to grow older and lose his wonder and mystery at the world. And, you know, that's crazy. But how much crazier is it that we, people who are given bodies and souls by the Lord, made in the image of God, and bought by the precious blood of Christ, lose our wonder and our mystery. Believers, have you grown older than your God? God's not disenchanted. Have you grown older than your God? If you're feeling that this morning, if you drank deeply from the well of disenchantment, I invite you to another well this morning, a well drawn from Emmanuel's veins. I invite you to believe again, not just with mental assent, but in your soul and in your lives that God is still here, actually, really, and that he can still work miracles. I invite you to believe in the God that can actually still change people and use us to do that when he wants to. I invite you to believe with me that God can actually bring a new great awakening on American soil because our breaking bread is a sign that God is not done here in our country or our city. I invite you to believe that God can still give you freedom from sin, even sins you're clinging and addicted to. I invite you to believe that God can still heal broken families, even in the most messed up situations. I invite you to a meal that cures your disenchantment by wedding the physical with the heavenly.
A meal that by faith can serve as a door into a world enchanted not by magic, but by the grace, presence, and activity of God. I invite you to a meal where all feelings of disconnected, intangible faith are connected to the tangible body of Jesus by the Spirit. And I invite you to a meal where the host and the spiritual food are one and the same, and where the grace of God is given to us in the body and blood of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. God, um, we are disenchanted in many ways, in differing ways. We all have different levels of of wonder and majesty, but um, I guarantee that none of us in here have enough None of us are full of it in a way that the beautiful truths that you give us in the gospel demands, God. And so I pray today that you would part part the clouds in our souls and that you would give us wonder and mystery. Not not just, you know, magical things or stories, but in the gospel and in the truths that you give us in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Amen.